Almighty God, everlasting King and Judge, source of all compassion, the promise of your mercy and saving help opens our hearts to the hope of your instruction. Hear the cries of the people of the Middle East, bring healing to those suffering from violence, comfort those mourning the dead, encourage with the promise of your kingdom those who have been forsaken by the world. O God of hope and Father of wisdom, teach us to desire your mercy and to seek reconciliation with enemies. Instill your people with compassion for the downtrodden and oppressed, that having no place to lay our head, we may live as citizens of the kingdom which is to come, where nation will not lift up sword against nation, and men will never again learn war. For you are the King of peace and the Father of mercies, and to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 26 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We bring this episode to you this week with a heavy heart. Both Richard and I have close connections to people who live in Israel and in Palestine, people on both sides of the conflict that we care very deeply about, and the war in Gaza, the violence that's taking place, and the media coverage and the social media activity surrounding the violence that's taking place has been extremely disturbing to both of us, especially because, in many instances, biblical metaphor and different understandings of sacred texts and sacred traditions enter into the conversation. It's not that what's happening in Gaza is a religious war. It's not a religious war at all. Those of us who understand history and understand politics realize that what's happening is about resources, specifically about control of territory and the implication of borders for national security and all of the normal things that nation states fight over in the modern world. Actually, going back to antiquity, this is what empires fight over. But the question is painful first and foremost because there are people who are suffering and doubly painful because of the way in which religion and the Bible is exploited to advance suffering. So we thought today would be a good day to talk about this issue and really set the record straight from a biblical point of view, which is the only point of view that matters to us. Right, and you know, one big critique that we have in the prophets is against militarism. It's against militaries. And this goes back, in Hosea specifically, to Exodus, because the Lord reminds the people that they were victorious over the Egyptians without a single weapon. And this is the frame of reference that the Lord is always bringing the people back to, is that you are victorious, not because of your weapon, not because of the strength of your hand, but because of the strength of my hand. And this is where it comes down to. And what happens in the book of the 12 is that we keep seeing time and time again, human beings putting their hope in a military. And when you have hope in a military, Militaries exist for one purpose, and that's violence. And yes, the Lord defeated Pharaoh's army, but Israel did not raise a hand. 
to do so. And when I say Israel here, I'm not talking about the Israeli state. I'm talking about the people of Israel as we see them in Scripture. And let's be clear for those who have been exposed or whose understanding of current events is tainted by the undercurrent, the ugly undercurrent of fundamentalism on the internet and elsewhere. The modern state of Israel is a modern state. There's no connection between modern Israel and ancient Israel. There's no connection between modern Egypt and ancient Egypt. There's no connection between the Palestinians and the Phoenicians or the Philistines in in the biblical text. All of these connections are imposed constructs. They're made up. The reality is that humanity is one family. We're a mix of many peoples, and so much has happened in the Near East over the millennia that it's really difficult to say anything with clarity about any group of people. I mean, the modern Middle East is a product of the deconstruction of the Ottoman Empire, which was already a melting pot. Right. And we look at current situations of conflict, we have to look at them through a scriptural lens. And if we look at them through the lens specifically of prophecy in the Old Testament, as it draws from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, especially Exodus, the way that you are victorious is by putting your trust entirely in the Lord. The first time I really began to grasp this point, and in fact, it's funny because the situation in Palestine and Israel, the pain of that conflict is what first opened my mind to the possibility of the gospel. Because the gospel deals with the question of violence, oppression, and suffering. I came at it from a Palestinian perspective, but what happened over time is that the teaching that you're describing changed my attitude. So the draw for me, the draw to scripture, was the way in which scriptural metaphors touch on victimhood. But then scripture taught me the problem of the victim mentality. I mean, Paul is very clear. I learned it from Paul. Paul taught me how to read the prophets. I'll be very explicit. When Paul talks about slavery, when he talks about household order, when he talks about hierarchical structure, when he talks about the authority of government, which scripture obviously opposes, which is why people really struggle with what he's saying. His message always to those in position of weakness is that you have to submit. Now, people hear that and they say, on the one hand, Paul, scripture is fighting against power. But on the other hand, you're telling a slave to submit to a master. You're telling a wife to submit to a husband when in fact the gospel was given to set people free from bondage and oppression. And what happens is people will jettison what Paul is saying about submission and they'll focus on liberation and then they'll make out of it a civil rights ideology. But in doing so, they miss the real power of liberation in scripture, which is the power to resist tyranny by submitting to God in your love of the oppressor. This is why I always tell people, the instruction in the Torah to honor your father and mother does not have a clause, as people you know make out of it today in Western culture, which says, honor your father and mother if they're honorable. That's not what it says. It says, honor your father and mother after you honor God. In other words, you have God, and then you have the human authorities that you have to deal with. And whether or not the human authorities are good or correct or just is irrelevant. They are human beings, They are therefore part of God's household in creation, and you have to submit. And it is this submission and love that produces something 
in you and in them. That's the witness we struggle for. And this is the hardest teaching that scripture has for us. When there is this oppression, we have to submit. When things are ugly, we have to submit. And this is the absolute hardest thing that you can teach a human being because it goes against every biological impulse that comes into our body. When there are bombs coming from whichever direction that we are to submit to the neighbor. And then the response you get is, if we do that, then we're going to be wiped out. And on an individual level, on a communal level, even a national level, how can we allow that to happen? This is a legitimate concern because but, it goes with every biological impulse that we have. But is it a legitimate concern because the calculus of scripture is ruthless? It was just having this conversation with my wife about the abuses of Stalin. It's the same thing. How can you come to terms with all of these people dying? Irrespective of what they were bearing witness to or not bearing witness to, how can you come to terms with what feels like this immense purposeless death. And I think the ruthless calculus of scripture is that everyone's going to die. So why not let your death serve the cause of love? Because whether it's a year from now, a decade from now, half a century from now, sooner or later you will be gone. And in all the days from this day until then, what does your life stand for? Because once you're gone, the difference between 20 years and 50 years is irrelevant. You're gone forever unless the Lord remembers you as we pray in our tradition. But the point is, what does your life stand for? Are you going to change the heart of the Israeli by responding with a missile? Or are you going to change the heart of the Israeli or vice versa by responding with love? That to me is the question Paul poses in this very difficult paradigm which he takes from the prophets of the relationship between the master and the slave. But my question for you, Dr. Benton, something that I struggle with in the media coverage in our country, in the West, is the way in which they try to take this idea that both sides are guilty and use it not as a way to instruct unto life as scripture does, but to justify the position of the country that happens to be our ally. Could you reflect on that? Because that's something I struggle with deeply because I know from a scriptural perspective that we have to always oppose the mentality of the victim and we have to always oppose militarism and violence. Yet emotionally, there's a disparity on the ground. I mean, can you talk about that? Yeah, I think whenever your teaching does not end in love and submission, then it's worldly. Everyone has done bad things. Everyone has shot their missile. Therefore, everyone's bad. Okay, but the end of the teaching then is what? The end of the teaching is then, well, governments have to do what governments have to do. Oppressed people have to do what oppressed people have to do. Is that the end? No, that can't be the end. The end has to be love. The end has to be submit and love. Okay, everyone has done something evil. Okay, who's your enemy? Now submit to them. If listeners want to go with scripture or not, that's not my problem. That's between them and the Lord. But the teaching of scripture is that you have to submit to the oppressor. If I were pushed, I don't even know if I could do it. 
I'm not going to put myself on that level. I can't put myself on the level of Scripture. But this is the only teaching that Scripture has. If you look at the Book of the Twelve, and it starts out with the problem of militancy and apostasy, which is actually looking for other uh, sources of wealth and prosperity besides the Lord. We take that in the Book of Hosea. If you look at how things end up at the end of the Book of the Twelve, in the books of Zechariah and Malachi, the ideal city is set up. What is the ideal city? The ideal city is that anyone within the city treats each other with love and all of their enemies look upon them and they want to join. Because who doesn't want to be a part of the society where everyone loves each other? Now, it might be that there are people who will reject a city whose life comes from following Torah and loving the neighbor. And in Zechariah, those people melt away. The only people left are the city in which people love each other. And there is no distinction of nationality because it begins, the city begins with the Israelite and it ends with all the Gentiles who decide that they want to join up. This is, this is Isaiah. This is Isaiah's city. It's the place where the swords are turned into implements of farming and where nations no longer make war against other nations and men study Torah instead of studying violence and the methods of violence and the methods of warfare. It's very clear that this is the eschatological vision of the kingdom in the prophetic tradition. It's very clear that this is picked up in the New Testament in the kingship of Christ, which is manifest as worldly defeat and weakness. It's so important, it's so powerful. I think what I struggle with, and talking to you always helps me clarify my position because I share Palestinian heritage with my mother's family. I think sometimes it's really hard for me to be objective, but I think scripture always keeps me on the straight and narrow, which is why I appreciate these discussions, Rich. But I think that what is problematic about the reporting among the Western nations, specifically the U.S., which is Israel's ally, I mean, Israel and the U.S. are a team in this endeavor. What I struggle with is that they use this idea of equivalency to avoid introspection and to avoid the very important duty of looking at things from the perspective of the other side. I want to be clear, Hamas launching a missile is the same function, the same destructive function as Israel taking a scriptural metaphor like the pillar of fire, you know, and, and talking about pillar of defense or whatever they called it. And then in the name of the Torah, just decimating Gaza and causing hundreds of deaths. Because if Hamas could, they would commit the same violence that Israel is committing. So there is equivalency in this regard. My difficulty, though, is that we on the outside, we're not even on the outside, we take a side, you know, ideologically. We use this concept in order to self-justify the challenge that I would lay before our listeners is to feel the same identification with Palestinian suffering as you feel with Israeli suffering. You should identify with Israeli suffering, but you should also make an effort, it's an ascesis to use the Greek, to be able to identify in the same way on a very personal level with the suffering of those who are presented to you as the other side. Because if you are subject to the biblical teaching, there is no side. If you are subject to the biblical teaching, you have to feel the wound of the person living in Gaza 
in the same way as you would feel the wound of an American or an Israeli. That's not happening. We are all children of God, as Dr. King used to say. The distinction in scripture is simply between those who submit to the teaching and those who do not submit to the teaching. Those who do not submit to the teaching are violent and oppressive, and those who do are not. That's the distinction that scripture gives us. The worldly distinction of nationality and history and ideology this does not play in scripture. Well, it's all a construct. As it's we all said. it's all a human construct. Correct. And in Hosea chapter two, the Lord makes fun of them. Right. And they says, "Oh, uh, we're not getting what we want. Let's go back to our first husband. Things were better back then." Like it literally says this. Things were better then than now. And so they go back, and the Lord's like, "No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't just like you choose which direction you want to go. There's one teaching. There's one Lord." and you have to submit, and that's it. And so when we look at two sides that are at war with each other, the distinction between those two sides is a human construction. The scriptural distinction between them are those who are submitting to the teaching, those who are not submitting to the teaching, those who are submitting in love, and those who are not submitting in love. Now, the people who are not submitting in love, some of them have guns, some of them have don't. Some of them have Apache helicopters, some of them don't. It doesn't matter. Correct. Israel is being addressed in Hosea. Now, because you did not submit, I'm going to force you to submit. And what does he do? He brings the Assyrians to do so. Yeah. And then what do you end up with? You end up with Obadiah, where it says, okay, now you who assisted in oppressing the Israelites, now it's your turn. I'm going to now make sure that you stay in your place because the one who is being oppressed has to understand themselves as being judged by the hand of God. So what about the people who get to act as the hand of God? What comes to them is judgment. Why? It's always because of arrogance. This is what I call the beautiful mirror of scripture. We always talk about this. Scripture is always showing you your doppelganger. You despise Babylon. So in Ezekiel, when God is using Babylon as his right hand, it makes you physically sick because you are, as an addressee of the text in your historical context, you are someone who considers Babylon the enemy and the oppressor. So how could God side with them? But that's how it functions. God sides against you. But to the Babylonian in Ezekiel, I mean, God will still turn around and crush Babylon. That's how it functions. God is always against you. For Paul, the Romans are the right hand of God to judge them. Yet Paul is fighting the Roman Empire in his letters very clearly. It's not an ideological system. It's a mechanism of opposition which constantly tills the field, constantly trims back the plants that are growing in the garden of the Lord's creation so that they can bear fruit. People who cling to the prophetic message are always on the margins. This podcast would be much more popular today if we came out and said that we decided we're for Palestine and we're for Israel. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think it's important. I really want to make a personal plea with our listeners. As much as you identify with the suffering of the Israeli people, and you should, please force yourself to identify with the suffering of the people in Gaza and the West Bank. Identify with them. You have to always identify with those who are suffering. That's the only way. And you submit to those who have power. With love is the only answer. It's the only teaching that scripture offers us. It stinks, but so did the crucifixion. Take care, Doctor. Right, thank you, Father.